0: Hi everyone, thanks for listening to this podcast. Before we start, if you'd like to enjoy premium access to this or any of our other podcasts, as well as our in-depth articles, you need to become a member. You can enjoy a 30-day free trial by following the link in the show notes. Join our global community of listeners and readers today to stay informed and in the know about all things climate and energy. It is no longer a question of if but when the majority of our road vehicles will be electric. As we begin to move to the next generation of EVs, along with it comes a host of services and digital platforms to support it. This creates many opportunities, not just for EV owners, but for grid operators as well to help support the energy transition. Hello, I'm David Weston and today on the Energy Enablers podcast, I'm talking to Torben Fogg, co-founder and chief innovation officer at Danish EV charging software developer, SPIRI. We talk about what the future of electric mobility might look like and what it means for grids and customers. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Torben, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Energy Enablers today. First of all, as an e-mobility company, you're really driving the uptake of EVs uh, on our roads. Do you really think we can reach perhaps 100% electric vehicles on our roads or very close to it?
1: Yeah. First of all, thanks for inviting me. I'm I'm really happy to be here together with you. Um, And maybe I'm born an optimist, I have to say that. Um, I truly believe we can reach the target, but I also know that uh, it will not be easy to reach it 100%. uh, And it will take some time. We are definitely on a course right now. Uh, A right course, I would say. Uh, but there are definitely bumps on the way. I know a few of them, and there might be even more bumps that might not be so obvious as, as those that I, I thought about. But you could say things that can delay us a bit is, for instance, supply chain. Recently, we had a supply chain issue. We couldn't get uh, components for this and that. Uh, it can also take time to roll out the supplies that we might have. So there's a little bit of a scarce workforce in, in some areas. Which will delay, you can say, uh, both the production of cars, but also reinforcement of grids and and so on. Then there are many grid constraints, and there's also the political push that requires. I mean, if you want to keep your business in, it could be certain um, c- certain logistic business you have where you need to to drive in and out of of a local city, and if there are environmental environmental zones, then you will need to switch entrance and transition your your fleet fairly fast in order to keep your business up and running but if you can't get the grid connection that you really need in order to to fuel your e-trucks or e-buses or e-vans or what it might be then you have a little bit of an issue so the time to market also comes in as a parameter that needs to be taken into account in order to keep the high transition pace or rate um yeah in the mobility segment
0: so do you think 2050 is a feasible target to to really decarbonize transport uh,
1: yeah, you could say some of these targets are a little bit political driven. I would prefer it would be 2030, <laughs> but sure. it's not that realistic. Um, 2050 is far more realistic, I think. Um, I'm not sure we will reach 100.0% uh, at that time, but um, it definitely looks like we will reach a high percentage. Great.
0: And so where does uh, software and, and digital platforms uh come in this space? How do they influence the future of the energy transition, uh,
1: particularly within e-mobility? It's a very deep question. It might take me a little while to answer, and please stop me on the way if it takes too long time. Usually, when when we are looking into both the past and the future, we, we, we see the hardware as being maybe something we could call the first wave. The first wave within e-mobility it was important to choose the right hardware. There was a big difference between hardware earlier, and there is still uh, on some aspects. Then the next thing would be to have a platform that could do the right things. And and the third thing is, what can you do with these things together, uh, supporting the grid and the grid constraints there? I would say the charge point, the the hardware side, is the enabler for doing grid integration, grid interaction. Um, The EVs, they are for sure large consumers. And just looking into the consumer uh, issue and uh, the impact on the grid side there is that one car more or less is comparable to one small family house in consumption per year. And many families tend to get two cars, for instance, two, two EVs. So you can, in principle, triple the consumption per house in certain areas, just to get a sort of uh, measure on, on, on how fast it's actually going. Then, um, since it actually gives us some constraints, then uh, you need the digital platform, the software side, to help you solve the smart things. How can we use the energy in a smarter way? Um, can we charge greener? Can we charge cheaper using the uh, information that is out there or maybe on our platform, for instance, or somewhere else uh, on on the prices per kilowatt hour per, I don't know, when during the day or night, uh, or the CO2 content in the electricity production. If you have a, a green pounding heart for um, saving CO2, for instance, then you can, for instance, use smart charging um, functionalities to, to charge when, when, when the CO2 content is, is low. That's just to mention a few things but but uh, the digital platform can do many more things and among the, the, the newer things that, that we see is um, referred to as demand response mm-hmm. um, which is helping stabilizing the grid mm. in the different energy markets using the different tools and methods that are available there um, usually it's within the frequency regulation domain. Some are called FCR, some are called FFR and so on. And I guess we can dive a little bit deeper into that really? if you like a little bit later in this uh, yeah. session. But, but that's just to mention some of the more advanced things. Then some of the uh, probably not so advanced things, but d- still very asked for is tariff handling and okay. uh, also dynamic pricing hmm. in many countries or areas. Uh, there's a wish for using various tariffs, and it's super important to to enter the tariffs into, you could say, the infrastructure owner's mm-hmm. way of setting up the pricing, and using maybe dynamic pricing, using, for instance, the spot pricing on top. Uh, it actually enables the CPO, the infrastructure owner, to lower uh, its financial risk of of uh, operating in in the energy markets, mm-hmm. and it also optimizes the happiness and the pricing for the uh, end user, the EV driver, because by, by using dynamic pricing with or without charge models, mm. um, you can actually very often offer the, the lowest price to the EV driver. Mm. So in that aspect, you, you, you win twice, I would say. You lower the financial risk for the CPO side, and you optimize the happiness for the EV driver side.
0: Really interesting. So are digital platforms uh, really an enabler for EV uh, adoption? uh currently and will they become therefore less important when we reach uh, a system where it's 90% plus EVs
1: and 90% plus renewables on the grid oh that's a tricky question <laughs> <laughs> um i think the uh, the need for for the digital platforms will will increase from now on uh, and forever because-, because there will be a, a higher and higher need for for doing uh, smart functionality, smart things, uh, getting around the bottlenecks we have here and there. But, mm. but actually, I see the renewables as a, a positive thing, as many political mm. people also do. But mm. it's also an issue. It's a, it's a headache for the TSOs. The TSOs are you know those that are operating the transmission grids uh, in the different countries. Mm. Um, the issue here is that renewable energy uh, production uh, sources like PVs, for instance, or wind turbines, it's fluctuating power uh, production, um, which in itself, because of the fluctuating uh, behavior, also um, unfortunately helps unstabilizing the grid, uh, and therefore there's a need to to assist when you have these fluctuating um, power sources. Mm. Um, it goes hand-in-hand with e-mobility quite well, because all the, uh, the EV platforms, the uh, electric vehicles, whether it's it's buses, trucks, vans, or light vehicles. They are all batteries it's just on wheels. Mm-hmm. So you can see the batteries there. They uh, they can assist um, helping us out of the issue that comes with fluctuating power production. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's also stationary battery uh, farms. I usually call them battery-to-grid uh, production farms. Uh, there might be many names for them. But but um, I don't know if this answers the, the two-sided part of, the, of your question
0: sure so digital platforms are still going to be a, a, an important element in grid control and i guess consumers are going to have to play that role a lot more actively than they have in the past yes yeah yeah
1: um, and they will get more and more tools for that uh, okay. from the platform side
0: hmm. you mentioned um dynamic pricing and, and periodic pricing models how are they shaping uh charging habits and
1: consumer behavior at the moment that's also a very good question And you have lots of those very good questions. And um, I think maybe um, if I can uh, use an example, I'm currently I'm sitting in, in, in the spear headquarters in in Copenhagen. So Mm -hmm. I'll try to use an example from Denmark, if it's okay. Please, Um, We have a wonderful tariff model called tariff model 3.0, probably a boring name, but uh, nevertheless, the idea is to, uh, to incentivize charging EVs as large consumers during periods where electricity is not scarce. Hmm. And actually, the cheapest period, uh, independently on the season and many more things, is from midnight to six o'clock in the morning. So whatever you do, it's always cheapest to to charge there. And the only uncertainty that comes on top is, what is the spot pricing? Um, So you can see the tariff model uh, that is being used in Denmark actually uh, does help on peak shaving. Okay. But it, it also switches the peak a little bit uh, to to, uh, to a later period. What we don't know is how how large will the peak be mm. if we uh, it, when all the cars are converted into electric cars and vans and so on. And if all wants to charge exactly at the same time where electricity is cheapest, what sort of chaos will that create? We don't mm. know that for, for sure now. And maybe there are some great experts that can help um, predicting that. Mm. But you can say that the current... Uh, um, help we get from the tariff model is that we're actually switching uh, the uh, the large consumers, at least some of the large consumers, to a time where there's more electricity available. Then um, you could say we, we also have the dynamic pricing that we touched a little bit upon mm. earlier, and that could be used for public charging. It could also be used for of course home charging, um, so you can charge when it's cheapest, but if you uh, want to charge in, in the public domain, and uh, if the CPO has enabled dynamic pricing, which we can allow them to do through our platform, for instance, mm-hmm. then um, the CPO can reflect the best prices that is available for, for the end user at the given time. And mm-hmm. you can see what the prices will be the next 24 hours. So uh, if you want to park at the um, parking position X, where there's an AC charger, for instance, then you can decide when to park and charge there rather than you have to do it right now so you mm. can actually optimize a little bit the pricing and thereby also you can say uh, the behavior you have um in relation to the grids um of course for the most of the ev drivers purpose, it's it's about optimizing their own economy so mm. they will usually chase the the price but i also see more and more that actually are chasing the charge greenest part where okay. they can they can charge um optimized when the co2 mm. content is the lowest in electricity production so you could say both on the dynamic and periodic pricing model mm-hmm. um we can use the platform to to shape and assist the consumer habits a little bit but we can actually also do it when it comes to a greener behavior where we are mm-hmm. trying to uh, constrain the uh, the co2 pr- production
0: and so so these digital platforms can also help i guess consumers to gamify does that i don't know if that translates but people can feel like they are um does, is there a risk that people can feel like they want to charge at a set time and so they can beat a competitor like uh beat their friends and, and oh, i got it at a certain i got it at a certain price or a certain carbon uh, intensity uh, but then that's at risk people sort of gaming the system itself and you know hogging charging uh charges public especially the public charges as well and, and meaning people that can't really when they really need to charge their car be able to do that is that a risk uh, yeah um
1: actually i think it's a wonderful idea with gamification hmm. um it can be used uh indeed to assist the consumer behaviors um i don't know if i well maybe this is not the best sort of imagination but i just see a uh, a young polar bear sitting there on the ice and the ice (laughs) becoming smaller and smaller because we are not taking care of the CO2 content well enough. And if you charge them when with a little bit of CO2 behavior, then there will probably be more ice for the poor polar bear. Mm. And if you do the the opposite, then there will be less ice available for it. And you can say that sort of gamification, uh, illusion or imagination Mm. could probably help, uh, Uh, the consumers thinking a little bit more about maybe the CO2 content and production. Um, When it comes to, to the pricing, the pricing is usually uh, the main tool for, for doing peak shaving or peak shifting. um, I would say, Um, but, but the gamification part, uh, I've seen it before, although not so much in e-mobility, but I think it's, it's a very wonderful tool that could help us all.
0: Amazing. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, Uh, Looking forward to see how that develops in the the coming years. Uh, You you mentioned peak shaving and uh, and peak shifting a little bit there. Obviously, really important grid management tools. Are EV charging technology providers monitoring and optimizing power usage in real time now to prevent grid overloads? Are they helping the grid operators uh, in in seeing when there's perhaps congestion on the grid or times of high demand in order to um, help manage the grid at any given time?
1: at least that's not my impression today uh, I must say we are we are not there yet uh, okay. as a branch um, because it has not been that necessary in the past right um, so um, from from my position I would say for the majority probably not today uh, but for those that that has enabled and unlocked the potential of uh, assisting the grid with demand response services, which is frequency regulation um, for for one way charging, or it could mm-hmm. also be for bidirectional charging. Um, they need to to monitor and control much faster than the conventional ways are. And uh, usually, if it's well, uh, the slow part of it, which is called FCR, mm-hmm. um, it will cr- uh, it will demand. Uh, sampling rates where you sample meter values per second, for instance, which right. is quite fast. And uh, but charges can usually live up to that. If you want to sample much faster, then you have an issue with the charges, hmm. and uh, then you run into to problems with um, real time uh, or very fast uh, monitoring and control of the uh, the power consumption. But but if you want to do the TSO demand response, as I usually call it, then you will definitely need to to Um, We can always discuss whether it's real time, but definitely Mm. with a fast sampling frequency.
0: Hi, everyone. Just quickly dropping in to ask if you could like and share this podcast with your network, you'd be really helping us out. If you're a member, you can join the conversation below this podcast on our website or app. If you're not a member, what are you doing? Try us on a 30-day free trial by following the link in the show notes and join the conversation with a global community of energy professionals. Now, back to the show. So, what kind of level of communication is there between e-mobility and charging providers and grid operators? Is there a lot of communication between the two, or are you merely taking signals from the from the grid and from the market?
1: Um, there will be much more communication going down the road because it will be more and more important. Uh, today, it's we're still standing on on the beginning of of uh, this new era, but the way it works is that. Uh, the platform that, that want to, to offer the uh, demand response services for the TSO, for instance, mm. they will need to to also take care of the aggregating role or partner up with an aggregator, depending on, on what the platform operator want to do there. It's probably a strategic uh, decision. Mm. So um, if, if it was, as an example, if it was on the Spirit Connect platform, then the aggregation part will be something that we also master. And uh, then we can bid into the, uh, the different energy markets. Mm. Um, the TSO is connected to the aggregation part. And uh, therefore, you can say the control signals are that uh, uh, we should, for instance, um, uh, control the, the frequency in upwards or downwards uh, mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to do it with whatever uh, speed requirements there might be in, in an energy market. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And uh, then, of course, you also need to document that you have done it, and uh, that you can live up to all the requirements. Mm. Um, so, but TSO demand uh, demand response is one thing. There's another thing which I usually refer to as DSO demand response, mm-hmm. and that's usually not with the same speed. It could be, but but um, it's more on the local grid side. Yeah. Uh, if you think about transformers, substations, space stations, and these things, maybe to use a boring example. Um, I live way out in the nothingness, uh, according to my children, approximately 15 kilometers north of Copenhagen, far away from life. And um, uh, my little house is among the other 300 houses that are being powered by a 400 kVA transformer. So if everybody wants to have uh, one or two EVs and chargers and heat pumps at the same time, then we have an overload of that transformer. So mm-hmm. either the DSO needs to reinforce the grid at uh, a huge amount or we should do something smart in order to avoid overloading the transformer and mm-hmm. live with the capacity that's available. And that's actually possible. And here we can also do, let's say peak shifting and so on, um, avoiding the overload of the local grid. But then it's, it's more on the DSO side than on the TSO side. Right. Both demand response and both um, depending on having a platform that is connected to the dso's mm. or the tso uh with or without an aggregator um and yeah living up to the local requirements mm. and is that possible today is there enough
0: openness and transparency and can that connection take place today um
1: between the platform provider and either the tso and the dso uh yes okay. um although i have to say there's a The DSO side is not fully developed yet. We're working with uh, a number of DSOs across Europe on defining what is the value of the DSO demand response to them and their customers. Mm. Um, And this this value has not yet fully been defined, Mm. but we have some innovation projects where we are looking into the details, trying to, to, uh, you can say, uh, get closer to concluding what should be the value in whatever area uh, in Europe, for instance, Mm-hmm. On, on having DSO, uh, demand response services. On the TSO side, it's fairly defined, I would say, and we are doing that today on okay. AC chargers and DC chargers. We can also do it on batteries. Um, there's a difference there, and then maybe if I can dwell with that for two seconds, then sure. uh, otherwise you just have to stop me, of course. Um, on the charter side, we have for long been speaking about V2G vehicles to grid, mm-hmm. uh, where you can... Um, take out the power from, from the battery in, in, in the vehicle and throw mm. back to the grid. Uh, so it's bidirectional charging. Yep. Um, and we've been talking about it for many years now, and we're still talking about it, but it's not yet a commercial mm. volume thing. You cannot go and buy um, fully enabled V2G uh, vehicles today, mm. not in, in in large scale at least, and uh, having um, the right uh charges connected to them and an installation that actually can give you v two g but uh then you have what many people today call v one g and that is the one directional uh charging where we can uh, we can charge faster or slower we can do different things we can do symmetric charging or we can we can regulate or control the power so we can constrain the power uh, due to um, frequency needs. Uh, This is possible with the majority of charges available uh, on the market today and those that are installed. It just requires the platform can um, or are connected to um, the right aggregating sort of setup Mm. uh, with the local TSO. And then we can follow the the different uh, local requirements there. So it's possible. And thereby you can actually unlock uh, high value for Mm. the infrastructure owner. And this value Mm. can either be released, of course, it's up to the infrastructure owner, uh, but it can be released to uh, yeah make their uh, offer more attractive to their their end users, but it can also be used for maybe setting up more charges, and there are many things that, that actually could benefit the society and the users by tapping into the, the value streams there. Hmm. Um, then there's the B2G, battery-to-grids, and that's yes. also something that already exists. And here you have the full flexibility of bi-directional charging, assisting uh, the grid at any time, mm. doing normal frequency regulation, for instance, FCR, but mm. also the faster one, which is uh, available in some countries in some seasons called FFR. Um, so, so this is also um, a fast growing thing. Uh, right. We see within the e-mobility domain that the same platforms needs to also support not only V2G, okay. but mm. definitely also stationary uh, batteries. Okay. Interesting. Um, we did
0: a whole uh, episode of energy enablers on bi charging with uh, Stefan Paris from Siemens smart infrastructure. Wow. Um, so uh, yeah, if, if you want to hear more, please go back and listen to, to that episode uh, as episode or two ago. Um, and maybe we'll get you guys, on. maybe we'll get you guys on a joint episode at some point to, uh, to delve into that a little bit, a little bit more. Um, so just before we we wrap up here, a couple more, couple more quick questions on the future of e-mobility. Um, what, to what extent do you think micromobility will play a role in the future of e-mobility? Things like e-bikes and e-scooters, uh, obviously they have uh, they're growing in numbers, and they, again, sort of critical mass, much more storage uh, availability for for grid operators to take advantage of. Always not always
1: uh, in use, uh, yeah. How about micromobility and, and its role in e-mobility? Micromobility is definitely uh, growing very fast, um, especially e-bikes. I'm, I'm just talking from my own perspective, what I see. Hmm. Um, and on the e-bike side, I would say the, the possibility to reuse the batteries in some way in the grid is uh, next to nothing. It's it's almost zero because the, the batteries are not really connected only when they sure. charge. And it's just one way and uh, directional and you have no control over the battery. Right. So um, it doesn't really help us, but it's probably healthier to, to use those bikes than dri- driving in your um, sure. electric vehicle um so definitely good still okay uh when it comes to scooters and things like that uh, i think the, the possibilities are better there but but it's also small battery capacities right of course if you have a large volume of those connected at the same time then maybe you can use them what i think could be of better use and again i'm, I'm just seeing things from nice. my own naive perspective um that would be home batteries so okay. if you have home batteries as um, uh, mm-hmm. backup uh, sources. That is being introduced in in, in different countries as a mm. must, uh, like Japan, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, then you can use them uh, also with the grids. So mm. so hooking up with those mm. uh, will potentially uh, enable a large battery uh, capacity volume that can be used also as a as a grid buffer, uh, similar to to the um, the, uh, the stationary batteries. Uh, of course, the interfaces needs to be. Maybe um, future developed uh, a little bits so mm-hmm. that they can enter into the same market as as the the bigger batteries yeah. that is being used for industrial purposes as well.
0: And is that something perhaps Spiri's working on with a view of more homes having a stationary battery in, in the garage or in the loft or, or under the stairs even or something like that? Uh, and can you, so it's integrated, you can integrate your home battery with your, with your EV uh, and charge each one differently at different times depending on spot prices and, and carbon intensity of the grid uh,
1: electricity at that time? Yeah, we, we, we have... Um... We have an innovation department uh, which are looking into future possibilities. And this is actually among one of those possibilities. It's the long run, I would say. Right. Um, but but uh, we see more and more grid instability here and there, and more and more wishes to, uh, to, uh, to to increase the consumption from EVs, from heat pumps. And if you have instability there, then you would definitely want to secure your home and your heat, mm-hmm. um, but also your, your mobility. Yeah. So having the battery that you might have in in your garage uh, could help you as a backup provider for for electricity, either for your car or for your heat pump or for something else Mm. would be wonderful. But since that battery will be super expensive, then it would be great to use it also for demand response purposes, either DSO or TSO, Mm. and then have a faster return on investment. So we're definitely looking into these things. Um, It's not for tomorrow, but it's for a few days after.
0: Okay. I will bear that in mind. Uh, and just finally, that uh, maybe a little bit more of a question for the uh, hardware side of things rather than the software, which we've been focusing on. What about modularity within the e-mobility sector? Will we be able to eventually, we'll buy a car uh, when we need, if the battery, once the battery gets to the end of its uh, life, could we literally just take out that battery, put a new one in um, rather than having to buy necessarily a whole new car, a whole new power system? Um, is that something that's going to grow uh, within within this space? Um, actually, I
1: would really hope so. But, um, yeah, it would definitely be great. Mm. But, but honestly, I think it is a little bit of a difficulty for the next few years. Okay. Uh, because it requires a lot of more flexibility from, from the EV platforms. And at present, I think in order to have that flexibility where you just can replace the battery for your old 400 volt battery with a new 800 volt battery, uh, it will require a little bit more of, um, at least production costs, because then the, the EV uh, producers they, they would have to cope with uh, the future at an early stage and make sure that their platform and the modularity of of, uh, of the car also supports the future things to swap batteries, to swap plugs, and so on. Um, so, with the knowledge I have from the OEM industry, where they are trying to save as much as they, as they can save, I think it would be. Um, it would be sometime into the future before we can see that sort of flexibility. Hmm. Um, and the, yeah, the average lifetime of a car these days, it's, it's probably around 10 years. So about the same as a battery probably. Yeah.
0: Sure. So, and thank you so much. Really interesting uh, journey through sort of the e-mobility sector and especially the, the, the digital and the software element are of that. I'm really interested to learn a little bit about more about your background and how did you get to working in digital software in the e-mobility sector
1: i hope you have a long time because it's a long journey <laughs> um no but yeah uh, my academic background is um i finalized as a master of science in electrical electrical engineering back in okay. the previous millennium uh in 94. and, and, and where, started, did that, where did that where did that interest come from why did you study electric uh engineering uh in uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, the Danish, uh, the Technical University of Denmark called DTU. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, for me, it was super great. I, I worked with uh, what people today called AI, um, artificial intelligence, wow. uh, various advanced uh, mathematical models and so on, uh, classifiers and tons of things. Um, and the fun thing is that I switched to uh, the mechanical industry from that point, actually the marine industry. Um okay. And I brought some of the, the tools with me trying to um, diagnose different things on large marine uh, diesel engines. I also uh, spent a little time uh, doing a PhD while I was working. So I, I, was, I had an office in, in DTU again okay. and uh, in, in, the, in the place I, I worked and did a PhD again on signal processing using uh, neural networks and various classifiers and mathematical models to diagnose things and, and create early warnings for things that had a high value in a <laughs> marine segment for marine diesel engines. Right. Later on, um, when I was within immobility, mobility um, I also spent a little time on doing an executive MBA. Um, so I spent a long, long time on the school bench, I would say, uh, hmm. diving into all the books and doing uh, fun stuff there. Um, but I spent like probably around 14 years in uh, the marine industry. Right. And then I switched to uh, from having polluted the world with a lot of diesel fumes. Then I, I jumped into the e-mobility industry. I started my career in e-mobility in 2010. I thought it actually was great diving into the cross field of many disciplines. Mm. Um, I could do a little bit of research again, uh, but also operationalize uh, the industrial development and research into something that was useful not only for me, but for, for the society. At that time, it, it, you should be careful who you told that you were working with uh, EVs. They, they mm-hmm. could probably have killed you for less. Um, but but uh, since then, uh, it is now something that we see on, on any street. At well, that sure. time, I mean, you could count maybe one EV per day yeah. if you were on the lucky side. Mm. Uh, but now it's it's more common. Uh, and it just, yeah, make me think that the trend I jumped into, I didn't know it was a trend at that time. Mm. But uh, I, I'm convinced I've chosen the right uh, branch to spend mm. my time in. Well,
0: was uh, the, I'm really happy
1: I to e-mobility.
0: Yeah. Was, was the inspiration in that, sh- in that switch to e-mobility, was that... Partly driven by uh, the, the climate crisis and the desire to um, e-
1: electrify things um, a bit, but but uh, not with the biggest green heart at that time. Okay. Was also the opportunities that came out with uh, bridging uh, the cross field of many technical disciplines mm. and um, uh, the obvious of the simplicity uh, switching away from from fossil fuel based cars cars mm-hmm. to to uh, to the mobility side how much simpler it could be done when mm. i was in the marine segment uh we actually made a digital platform to control a marine diesel engine uh, to optimize for um uh, fuel consumption for instance and mm. pollution uh, and okay. we threw away some of the mechanical constraints and it was also very weird to many people at that time that it was possible to do but it, it enabled a lot of flexibility that was otherwise not possible and I saw some of the same things in, in e-mobility when I started in that place. Um, yeah. It, so, um, and then I realized again that uh, this also, um, well, enabled me to get back to some of the signal processing and uh, right. um, maybe uh, trying out new things with the mathematical models. I mean, sure. within e-mobility, we also do AI. Um yeah, are many forms of things you can do in AI, so I don't want to brag with that. But mm-hmm. things like prediction, forecasting, mm-hmm. finding out when is it cheapest for you and me to to charge. Uh, is it this week? If I'm only charging once per week, is it then this week I should charge? Or, mm-hmm. or could it be today? Or should I wait until Sunday? Which day should I, I aim for if I want to save um, uh, on the cost side? So here you can say you can also use some of the mathematical models to help you predict when it's it's actually cheapest. Or cleanest, or mm. something else to charge. Mm.
0: And do you keep do you keep half an eye still on the marine sector and and the shipping sector about their decarbonization
1: journey? Uh, I I actually do. Uh, and sometimes when I'm driving over bridges and uh, seeing the the tankers and container mm-hmm. ships, then I'm trying to think about do they have uh, this and that on board? And ah, now they have a new design, and maybe yeah, they have sure. thought about this and that and so on.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Some really interesting work happening there as well. Uh, Torben, thank you. Last question. Uh, and it's one we ask all of our guests
1: on the energy enablers. Will the energy transition succeed? Of course it will. I'm an optimist. Uh, maybe not exactly at uh, 2050.0, but I think the the track that we have entered into is definitely the right track and it's going fast and uh, um, it's very obvious what is happening on the, the climate side. So, I think more and more people there joining in on really wanting to do something for, for the climate and helping out and the transition into uh, yeah, uh, f- fully EV uh, mm. driven, uh, at least on those vehicles that can do that, is definitely uh, going fast. And and um, I think it's it's well supported also from the political side. Um, we can always hope for more, but I think it's, it's well supported for now. Absolutely. Tobin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to see you next time.
0: My thanks to Torben for that fascinating look into the e-mobility future. I'm really interested to see how gamification could impact how EV charging is perceived and treated in the future. What technologies and models are you most looking forward to seeing in the EV charging space? Let us know by commenting below this podcast on our website or app, or by sharing your thoughts with us on LinkedIn. Remember, you can try Foresight for free for one month by following the link in the show notes. Until next time, thanks for listening.